Welcome back to the Der Show. I always miss you and our encounters uh, during the days that I'm not on. But if you miss me, you can always see me on Locals. Um, I do a Locals thing every single day, uh, bringing my viewers and listeners up to date with uh, most recent uh, developments. Uh, today, I want to talk about the nominee to the United States Supreme Court, um, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson. Uh, you may have seen her statement, very good statement, very well done. Uh, some of the opening statements by Democrats, Republicans, predictable, split along party lines. Um, I was a little disappointed in my former student, uh, Ted Cruz, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, was in my class in criminal law. He was one of my best students, and he didn't seem to accept the notion that everybody's entitled to a defense, and her work as a public defender really shouldn't disqualify her from being on the Supreme Court. He didn't say that, but he was a little skeptical of uh, her being soft on crime because she was a public defender. In my experience, public defenders aren't soft on crime any more than prosecutors are necessarily hard on crime. They each have jobs to do. And when you're a defense attorney, you defend criminals. I happen to be hard on crime. I happen to be tough on crime. I don't like criminals. I defend them, but I don't like them. And, um, uh, you know, a doctor uh, takes care of uh, very bad people. And you don't judge the doctor by his patients, and you shouldn't judge a lawyer by the clients. Um, and tomorrow we're going to start seeing hard questions uh, put to uh, Judge Jackson. And today I want to tell a story about my one encounter with Judge Jackson when she was a student at Harvard back in 1991. We're talking 31 years ago. My only personal uh, encounter um, with her. So it's 1991, and Harvard is beginning, finally, overdue, to admit considerable numbers of very, very qualified um, African-American students. Uh, she was one of them, extraordinarily well-qualified, great grades, and terrific student, and uh, uh, just the perfect person for Harvard uh, to admit. But for years, Harvard you know, had a discriminatory policy in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and even 60s. It discriminated against Jews. It had a quota system. It discriminated against uh, uh, Catholics, particularly ethnic Catholics, uh, Irish Americans, Italian Americans. Um, it discriminated, of course, totally against women. It didn't accept any. It had a separate college for women until they merged a Radcliffe College. But uh, by, by 1991, there were a considerable number of African-American students, I think around 8%. It's now considerably higher than that. And um, um, uh, now Judge Jackson, then um, uh, Ketanji Brown, was one of those students. And while she was a student, another student, a white student, uh, who lived in a suburb of Washington, in Virginia, I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, decided to provoke a conversation among students about the Confederacy. Um, she said that her great-grandparents, her ancestors, were Confederates, loyal Confederates, but they were opposed to slavery. And we know there were a lot of Confederates who were opposed to slavery. She said she came from a Catholic family and the Catholic Church had 
come out against uh, slavery, although it itself had participated. We know Georgetown University was essentially built by, by slaves, but the Catholic Church had changed its view. And there were a lot of people who fought for the Confederacy who were opposed to slavery. Uh, um, even some of the leaders of the Confederacy themselves didn't, didn't own slaves. Um, for some, the Confederacy was about independence, states' rights, uh, the right of every state to make its own decisions. As you know, South Carolina wrote a petition saying that any state had the right to secede. Um, Lincoln said no. Um, there were great debates going on. But so this student decided she was going to try to provoke a conversation. She did it in quite a provocative way, maybe some would say a very insensitive way. She hung a Confederate flag outside the window of her dorm room. And boy, <laughs> did she provoke a reaction. Um, another student, an African-American student, in response, hung a swastika outside of her dorm room, not to support Nazism, of course, but to try to make people whose families had been killed by Nazis understand how a black person would feel by seeing a symbol of their enslavement. So the result was a Confederate flag out of one window, a Nazi flag out of the other window. And of course, many students, including the Black Student Association, protested and demanded the university take down both flags. Who do you think the Southern woman who put up the Confederate flag came to to defend her? Well, me. Uh, she knew I had defended the rights of uh, Nazis to uh, uh, show their symbols on the streets of uh, Skokie. Subsequent to that time, I also defended the right of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, to fly its flag in commemoration of the death of Yasser Arafat, even though I obviously regard the PLO as a terrorist organization. But I believe in free speech. So she came to me and uh, I said to her, I think you ought to take the flag down. I understand what you're trying to do, but there must be better ways to provoke a conversation. She said no. She was gonna, she was gonna keep it up. She wanted to see how tolerant Harvard really was. Uh, she wanted to provoke uh, a controversy. Would I defend her right to do it? And I said, look, I think what you're doing is wrong, but I'll defend your right to be wrong. That's what the First Amendment is all about, Voltaire. I may disagree with what you were saying, but I will defend to the death your right to say. It. I'm not ready to defend to the death her right to send to do it, but I was ready to defend pretty vigorously her right to do it. And so I did. And there was a lot of controversy. And I made a couple of speeches um, to the students who were opposed to the flag flying, who wanted to have it censored. And I don't know for sure whether Judge Jackson was among the students who actually heard me speak, but she obviously knew about the controversy and she knew about my position, and my position ultimately prevailed. Um, Harvard University announced that it would not compel the student to take down the flag, though it urged her to be sensitive to the feelings of other students. Look, I, even under the First Amendment, this is a close case. First of all, Harvard isn't bound by the First Amendment. Harvard's a private school. As an argument, maybe it is. Harvard is recognized in the Massachusetts Constitution Harvard is actually a decade older than Massachusetts. Harvard was 
established as a university before Massachusetts became the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and of course Harvard receives enormous amount of federal and state aid, particularly in its medical school and science departments. So you can make the argument they're state actors, but um, it doesn't matter because Harvard takes the position that it is bound by the spirit of the First Amendment. If I could persuade them that the flag was covered by the First Amendment, they would rule in our favor. And I did persuade them that uh, the flag was, in fact, you know, the Supreme Court has held you can burn a flag, as Justice Brennan once said. If I saw a person burning an American flag, I would do two things. I would punch him in the mouth, and then I would defend his right to do it. Well, that's my position, too. Um, Justice Brennan was, uh, you know, about five foot four and um, pretty, pretty, pretty slim. I, I wouldn't fear punching the mouth by him, but I would fear a judicial opinion by him. He was great great justice and a really nice man. I got to know him fairly well when I was a law clerk on the Supreme Court and for years thereafter. But um, I didn't agree with her flying the flag. Harvard didn't agree with her flying the flag. I didn't agree with Nazis marching through Skokie. I didn't agree with the PLO flying its flag. But that's what the First Amendment's all about. It's about the right of people to do disagreeable things and the obligation of First Amendment lawyers to defend their right to do uh, disagreeable things. And I continue to do that. I've gotten into a lot of trouble over uh, doing that. Um, once when I defended a movie, I can't remember whether it was I Am Curious Yellow, I've defended a few of these, whether it was I Am Curious Yellow or Deep Throat, but it was I Am Curious Yellow. And the judge called us in, he was about to censor the film, and said, all right, now we're going to show the film in the courtroom. Everybody will watch it and we'll make the decision. I said, Your Honor, everybody's not going to watch it. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to watch it. I'm not interested in watching the film. I'm interested in defending its right of other people who want to see it to see it, but I don't want to see it. And so I'm here to defend two rights. I'm here to defend your right to see it if you want to, and my right not to see it if I don't want to. And I think that helped win the case. Um, the judge saw it and ultimately ruled it was not obscene. Today, if it was I Am Curious Yellow, it would, I think, be G-rated. probably wouldn't get the PG, but it would probably get the, the, the G rating with a little note on, on, on top saying, uh, caution, uh, quick uh, nudity or, or a moment of nudity or something like that. There was nothing, nothing about the film, A Deep Throat. Obviously, it was a different story. I, I never saw that film either. Uh, that's my attitude. I don't see the films. I just, def I just defend them. Um, and, you know, obviously, I don't attend Nazi marches. And I defend them. And I didn't support the flying of the flag as a matter of principle or ethics, but I defend the right of people to do things that I fundamentally uh, disagree with. But Judge Jackson was on the wrong side of that decision, and I think she was on the wrong side of the decision then, and I still think she was on the wrong side of that decision, but I also think she shouldn't be judged today, 31 years later, by what she and an organization she belonged to, the Black Students Association, advocated back in 1991. Um, first of all, I don't know the reasons that she took that position, maybe because she didn't think Harvard was a governmental unit. Uh, she may have thought that it was it would provoke violence. I don't think that there was any basis for that. But I argue with her. Let her express her views. I express my views, and my views prevailed. Her views didn't. But I wouldn't judge her today.
on the basis of views she held as a 20-year-old student, or however old she was. Um, but I think the episode does provide a basis for Republicans and Democrats, too, on the Senate Judiciary Committee to ask her about that incident and to ask her, without commenting on any specific cases, because there are no cases like that pending, currently in front of the courts, as far as I know, how she would weigh the right of free speech against the right of people not to be offended. Look, she might take the following position, and it's an understandable position. I don't agree with it, but it's an understandable position. She might say, as some people said, in the Black Law Students, in the Black Students Association, look, this is our home, away from home. Our dorm room is our home. It's not a public square. It's not just in the middle of Harvard Square. It's not in a classroom. It's in our home. And we have the right not to have a Confederate flag or a swastika in our home. Put it somewhere else. That might have been the position. It's an understandable position. I don't agree with it. I think the dormitory window facing the Harvard Yard is a sufficiently public space. Uh, interestingly enough, Boston University took the opposite view, and they took down some anti-war flags during the Vietnam period, saying we're a private university, we're entitled to, to do that, and the president of the university sought my advice on that. Um, so it's, it's not an easy issue, it's a complicated issue, and I don't know how she would answer uh, today, but it's very important to ask her her views generally about the First Amendment and freedom of expression, especially today, because so many people on the left, so many woke people, so many progressive people, even some people who call themselves liberals, liberals, not civil libertarians, but liberals, say, yeah, you know, free speech, it's important, but if it's hate speech, if it uh, insults a particular race, or if it is offensive to a particular group, if it makes people feel unsafe, that's the new word, unsafe, unsafe, as if you have the right to be safe in your ideas. You don't. You have the right to be safe in your physical uh, presence, but not in your ideas. Your ideas should be challenged, particularly at a university. But because today there are so many people on the left, and there are some on the right too, there's always been some on the right, the surprise is that generally they've been on the right today, the censorship is coming largely from the left, particularly in academic settings. Because of this change, I want to know what the new justice of the Supreme Court, if she's confirmed, thinks about the conflict between freedom of expression as guaranteed by the First Amendment. Let's assume we're talking about governments now. Freedom of expression is guaranteed by the First Amendment and the so-called right of minorities, particularly not to be offended. Even the ACLU has now taken the view that freedom of speech isn't as absolute as they used to think it was. It has to be balanced against the need for equality. They have vacillated. I want to know when she vacillates. Um, on the current record, I'm a supporter of uh, Judge uh, Jackson. She has all the credentials. Um, I don't mean only academic credentials. Yes, she went to Harvard College. Yes, she went to Harvard Law School. Yes, she 
clerk for a Supreme Court justice, which is a very elite thing to do, not an easy job to get. And she clerked for a group, very good Supreme Court justice, my friend Steve Breyer, who's about to uh, retire, whose seat she would take and whose office she would take, an office I used to work in when I was a law clerk, to Justice Goldberg. I think we had the same office that uh, Steve took over when he became a, a justice. He, too, was a law clerk for Justice Goldberg. So, uh, you know, I, I just, I just want to know. I want to know what her views are on that issue. And if she answers questions, I, I doubt she will. She's going to probably try to keep her views uh, as close to the vest as possible. She'll answer in generalities. And she's right, she's right not to answer about specific cases, because those cases come before the court and she doesn't want to. For example, if she's asked about the Harvard case that's now pending in the Supreme Court about whether or not Harvard discriminates against Asian American applicants, she can't answer that question because she may have to rule on it. She may also have to disqualify herself because she's on the Harvard Board of Overseers and therefore Harvard is a party to the lawsuit. It would be as if somebody had been on the board of the Exxon Corporation and there were a lawsuit against the Exxon Corporation. I think most Judges and justices would recuse herself, so I suspect she'll probably recuse herself, but she won't answer a question as specific as that. I don't even think she would answer the question, if you were a judge, and if this were a public university, and they hung a Confederate flag, and students complained, and the school tore down the flag, would you say they violated the First Amendment? She won't answer that question. But she would answer a well-phrased question about the value of the First Amendment in our history, the conflict between the First Amendment and other important values, whether in general hate speech is an exception to the First Amendment. Remember, in Canada, which is a vibrant democracy, some of you may disagree with Prime Minister Trudeau's approach to how he dealt with the protesters, but it's still a very vibrant democracy with a Bill of Rights. Um, and it prohibits certain kinds of hate speech that we don't prohibit. Um, democracies all over the world have different views of how far freedom of speech extends. Um, in Israel, it extends just about as far as the United States. In England, not quite. Um, France and Germany, not quite. Uh, different democracies, and of course, in Russia, non-existent. You have all the free speech you want if it's in favor of Putin, but say a word against him and uh, you're taken off the air. You can be put in jail. You can be fined. Is there free speech in Ukraine? I was disappointed the other day to see that the Ukrainian government has banned 11 political parties, which they claim are pro-Russian. Uh, I'm wondering if they ban the Nazis, because uh, there are Nazis. Let's, let's also just take a one minute and remember that the first Casualty of war is always truth. And although I love what Zelensky is doing, and I think he's a great hero, he has lied repeatedly about Ukraine's uh, past. He talked the other day in a speech to the Israeli Knesset about how wonderful the Ukrainians were to the Jews during the Second World War. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, there were more killings by bullets in Ukraine than any other part of Europe. They killed them so fast in the Ukraine, they didn't even have time to send them to Auschwitz or Birkenau or the other death camps. The Ukrainians were so involved 
in the killing of Jews. So don't give me this stuff about how good the Ukrainians were. Sure, there were some righteous Gentiles. There were 17 of them still alive. And Israel has offered to rescue every one of them and give them citizenship. But don't tell me about how wonderful Ukraine has been to Jews. It hasn't been. I don't wish on the Ukrainians that Israel should treat Ukraine the way Ukraine treated Jews. I don't wish that on the Ukrainians. They're too good for that. So, you know, truth has a role to play and free speech has a role to play. And I want to make sure that we continue to live in a country, the United States of America, which has this long tradition, tradition with exceptions. Remember that eight years after the First Amendment was passed, Congress shall make no law, no law abridging the freedom of speech. Seven or eight years later, George Washington signed the Alien and Sedition Act, which abridged the freedom of speech, which made it a crime to speak up against the administration, put people in jail as a result of it. Hypocrisy, thy name is government. So um, we haven't always been committed to freedom of speech, certainly not during the McCarthy period, but probably our record of free speech is better than that of any country in the history of the world. Um, even the Greeks, you know, they allowed free speech for certain people, but not for, not for others. Slaves didn't have the right of free speech. So um, I want a justice who's committed to free speech. And I hope that some of the senators, Democrats and Republicans, will ask her for her views on free speech and on the conflict between free speech and racial issues and the conflict between free speech and other issues. Uh, already she's been criticized by some Republicans for being soft on child pornography. She gave sentences in child pornography cases that were somewhat below the standard uh, that the Sentencing Commission had recommended, but every case is different. Every case is decided on its merits. Before I criticized her for any of that, I'd like to know a lot about the defendant. What was the nature of the crime? Was there a guilty plea? Was there a not guilty plea? Was he a, a, a recidivist? Uh, did he have a record of any other kind? You know, these are all issues that uh, we have to know about before we can be critical of any sentencing. But I'm hoping tomorrow the Questioning begins. Today was a day for pompous, self-serving speeches and people satisfied what we all knew they would do. And she made a very good, very good statement herself uh, about her background and her history. It's a great story. It's a great story. I mean, she is a wonderful person based on her background. And she really does lend diversity to the Supreme Court. I'm not talking about the kind of diversity that um, uh, is obvious based on, on skin color. I'm talking gender. I'm talking about a different kind of diversity. She's the first person in history to be nominated to the Supreme Court who was a public defender. Now, Thurgood Marshall was kind of like a public defender in some ways. He never was a public defender, but he defended people pro bono. Uh, uh, and, but she was a public defender. And that adds a dimension to the Supreme Court. She sees the criminal justice system not through the prism only of prosecutors, the way most justices do. Most of the justices who are on the Supreme Court today, and <clears throat> historically, who have been lawyers have been prosecutors, not defense attorneys. And so she sees it both through the eyes of prosecutors and through the eyes of public defenders. Her work on the Sentencing Commission 
also gives her experience in how to decide what kind of sentences should be administered uh, to what kind of defendants. So she brings to the Supreme Court um, perspective that it, it sorely uh, needs. She was also a trial judge, as was Sotomayor, um, and that's an important perspective too. As you know, I've said this before, I think the Supreme Court needs more diversity. It needs fewer Harvard and Yale uh, graduates on the court. Uh, I think there are now four Harvard and three Yale, maybe, and one Notre Dame. Those are all elite schools. Um, there was a nominee who was under consideration, also an African-American woman, who I think went to the University of South Carolina or another school, a more regional school. I think it would be good to get some people on the court who A, weren't judges, B, didn't graduate elite schools, and C, maybe had a little experience on the street uh, practicing a different kind of law. But we'll see the questions tomorrow. A lot of them will be predictable. A lot of them won't be questions. There'll be statements with question marks at the end of it. Uh, but they won't really be questions. They won't be designed to get information. They'll be designed to make gotcha points. And gotcha is a big part of how the Senate evaluates uh, nominations. You know, today, as usual, Jeffrey Tubin was on CNN and he totally distorted the history. Uh, he said, oh, the good old days when Scalia was confirmed 98 to nothing and, and Ginsburg was confirmed 92 to something. Oh, the good old days. It all began with the Republicans in recent years. Is he stupid? Is he ignorant? Or is he maliciously not telling the truth? It all started with Robert Bork. He was borked. He was extraordinarily well qualified to be on the Supreme Court. He was a Court of Appeals judge. He was a Yale law professor. He had published dozens of articles. And he was opposed because of his ideology, because of his politics. Jeff Tubin, you remember that? You were in my class when that happened. Or about there. So why do you deny your viewers on CNN the information necessary to make an intelligent decision? Why do you advocate instead of reporting? Why don't you tell them about Bork? Why don't you tell them it started by the Democrats, not the Republicans? The Republicans followed suit. And what they did to Garland was inexcusable. They stole a seat. But the difference between me and Jeffrey Tubin is you're, you know how Jeffrey Tubin's going to come out. Always, if it helps the Democrats, if it helps the left, he's going to report it that way. With me, it's different. I'm going to report everything. If it hurts the Republicans, I'm going to report it. If it helps the Republicans, I'm going to report it. If it helps the Democrats, as long as it's true. My job is to inform. You can make decisions about that. But Jeffrey, please, next time you talk about this, mention Robert Bork. Please mention Robert Bork. You want to go back a little further? Mention the court packing plan of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Understand that this hypocrisy goes both ways. It's not owned solely by one party. So let's hope tomorrow there are some good questions asked to uh, uh, Judge Jackson and good answers that I hope she provides. Okay, some questions. Let's start with this one. It's a good one. Is refusing to enforce federal laws grounds for impeaching President Biden? 
Biden has consistently refused to enforce the immigration laws of the United States. Clear answer. No, absolutely not. And uh, there was an impeachment once of President Johnson, the man who replaced Abraham Lincoln, for failing to abide by the Tenure of Office Act. It lost ultimately in the Senate. And then the Supreme Court essentially ruled that it was wrong. But the Constitution provides treason, bribery, or other, other high crimes and misdemeanors. And failure to enforce the law doesn't fit into those categories at all. So it's not an impeachable offense, but look, the Senate, the House can impeach, as somebody once said, I think it was uh, former President Ford, an impeachable offense is anything a majority of the House decides it is. Well, that may be his view, and it may be the reality, but it's not the constitutional view. Okay, next, the New York Times just admitted that the Hunter Biden laptop is really Hunter Biden's. For some reason, the usual evening news suspects are avoiding mentioning it. And uh, Jan uh, Psaki dismissed the subject brought up by several reporters in a White House press brief. It should be investigated, of course. Every potential violation of law should be investigated, not on partisan grounds. Democrats should be as interested in finding out the truth as Republicans. And then finally, I want to put this guy to rest. I have a guy, his name is The Montaigne. This is probably his 20th tweet, or whatever you call it, comment. I keep asking questions. You keep dodging them. What is the difference between a treaty and an executive agreement? And he goes on. What is the difference? Why are you saying it? Well, I devoted 10 minutes to it in one of my shows. I explained to you what the difference is. An executive agreement is not something that has to be voted on by the Senate doesn't need a two-thirds vote, but if it looks like a, a, a treaty and quacks like a treaty, it's a treaty. I went over that. So go back, go online, see what I say. If you're not satisfied with it, write me another message and tell me what's wrong with it. But don't keep asking the same question when I've answered it. Here's some love letters. I love your show. I enjoy your historical perspective and hearing about your religious traditions. I explained the holiday of Purim where uh, the Persians try to destroy the Jews. Um, okay. Professor, when does life begin? Isn't that the crux of the issue? I remember my brother, who was a lawyer for the American Jewish Congress, once testified on that issue. And he said, well, for Catholics, you know, life begins here. Protestants, life begins here. And for Jews, life begins when your son is admitted to medical school. Uh, look, he made a joke of it, obviously. Um, nobody knows when life begins. Uh, we know when life ends. Even there, there's a dispute. There's brain death. There's heart death. You know, fingernails keep growing. Hair keeps growing after you're certifiably dead. So even death is indeterminate, although we're pretty sure we know it. Uh, when somebody's dead, he's really dead. Does life begin at conception? Does it begin after six weeks, after 15 weeks? The legislature makes different decisions based on that. It's not a medical decision. When does life begin? Scientists can tell you when the pulse does this. Scientists can tell you various things about the embryo and growth. But when does life begin? Nobody knows when life begins. It's a religious, philosophical, you know, and, and the question is not that. That's not the question. The question is in a democracy, who decides? Who decides whether a woman has the right to have an abortion. Who decides? 
Is it a legislative decision? Is it a state-by-state -state decision? Is it a Supreme Court decision? That's the issue, not when life begins, but in a democracy, almost always, the issue is going to be who makes the hard decisions. Well, on the Der Show, you make the decision whether you like what I have to say or don't like what I have to say. And so please keep listening and please keep sending me letters and comments, not the same ones over and over again. And stop with all this anti-Semitism. I'm not going to read more of that stuff. It's so disgusting. Go back under your rocks and please, you know, if you want to watch my show, watch it. But I don't know why you watch my show. Uh, if you don't like me because of who my parents were and what my religious tradition is, I, mean, I can't uh, make you change your, your views on that. But, you know, it, it's enough already. You'd think that with the history of bigotry in this world that intelligent people would stop hating people because of their color, uh, their skin, because of the religious background and heritage. Uh, please stop that. It's, it's just, it's so un-American. It's so un-Christian. It's so un-Jewish. It's so un-Muslim. It's just profoundly wrong. So get back under your rock and leave good people alone. See you tomorrow.